The general topic is costly decisions in hostile word, and I want to start with a couple of just uh, Bible things, a novel idea. Um, uh, firstly, the word witnessing. As I was preaching through John, I'm trying to write a book on the Holy Spirit, which uh, won't most likely come out before I die. Um, and John's gospel is really critical on the, on the whole ministry of the Holy Spirit, because the place where you first discover about the Holy Spirit as a personal God, and a person of the Godhead, and so on, is actually from John and from Jesus' teaching. Uh, that's, the Old Testament doesn't teach you that, that he's a third person of the Trinity, you read that back from the New Testament. And the place where you learn it is in the upper room discourse. And those five statements, they're really very important. And one of them is about he will be a witness. And that comes in the context of the disciples are going to witness also. And it comes in the context of persecution. If they hate me, they'll hate you. And so in chapter 15 of John, verse 18 following, you'll see it's all about persecution and it comes to its conclusion on and the Holy Spirit will come, I'll send a comforter and he will be the witness and you will witness also because you've been with me from the beginning. It made me ponder more on the concept of witnessing and what it is involved. Because of our desire for uh, evangelistic argument and apologetics, etc., we've emphasised the disciples were eyewitnesses. And that concept of eyewitnesses is used in 2 Peter chapter 1, for example, and even in that passage from the point of view of the disciples have been with Jesus from the beginning. But witnessing is not eyewitnessing. That's why we have to use the little word I before witness, because not all witnessing is eyewitnessing. You ponder for a moment, you can have expert witness. An expert witness doesn't see anything, but he can explain to you the details to the court about certain, certain matters. It's, witnessing is testifying. But it's not just testifying. You never call a witness unless there's disagreement. When everybody agrees, there's no need for a witness. So it's testifying in the face of opposition. That's what witnessing is. It's because others will speak falsehood that you need to speak the truth in opposition. And so witnessing always, which is why you need the Holy Spirit to give you power to witness. You don't need power to witness in order to do miracles. You need power to witness in order to speak the truth in the face of opposition. Which is why when the Holy Spirit is given, do not worry that they're going to drag you before courts and councils and before, because the Holy Spirit will give you the words to say in those occasions, on those opportunities when they come. So when we call upon people to be witnesses, we are calling upon people to enter into opposition, to speak up against falsehood. 2 Timothy chapter 3, we read yesterday, and, and 2 Timothy chapter 3 tells you the world is going to be a hostile world. The very character of that world is described of, you know, there'll be lovers of money, there'll be lovers, there'll be haters of, of God, there'll be haters of the parents. That is the, the world in which we live, is the world that Paul looked forward to coming. That is, there is a post-apostolic world that was happening very soon after the apostles. It wasn't you had to wait a thousand years before this happened. But Paul does warn Timothy of the days that are coming and these days are the days that we have here now. But at the end of it, he says, warning about James and, and Jambres and opposing Moses, at the end of that, 3.9, he says, but they will not get very far for their folly will be plain to all 
as was that of those two men. So although we're going to be confronted with opposition and conflict, evil people who will be using the name of God to oppose us and all kinds of things, don't be alarmed. Do not be alarmed. God is sovereign. God is in control. They will not get far. And frankly, brothers and sisters, there are very few advantages in getting old. But one of the advantages is you've been around for a while. And that's a great advantage because you, you see after a while they don't get very far. The kinds of lunatic ideas that were thrown around in the 60s and the 70s, no one believes anymore. And the eight, but at that time, everybody believed it. So when Dan Hoosie Watch It came out with his, his weirdo book, what was that, uh, Dan? Sorry? Dan Brown and, yeah, I didn't bother reading it. Why didn't I bother? People read it and they, they gave good answers and the rest of it and, and, and blessed them and they did a great job and I'm glad they used it for the cause of the gospel. It was a complete waste of time for me because I read Eric von Daniken. Hands up those who have read Eric von Daniken. You can tell them they're the old people who need help to get their hands up now, you see. <laughs> exactly. Eric von Daniken was the Dan Brown of the 1970s. It was just as mad, just as lunatic, just as completely wrong. Swept the field. All kinds of people were, oh, I can't be a Christian. Eric Von Dedekens proves that it's all wrong. And of course today, you haven't even heard of him. He believed in space people coming into Australia, into the world. And there were rock carvings. You look at the rock carvings of ancient people. And they've all got the heads with really big, he big heads because that's actually space helmets. And that's where the gods came from. And it's weirdo, wacko stuff. But I tell you, I was leading a young man to Christ and he said, yes, I believe I want to become a Christian, but I have a problem. I said, what's that? He said, well, what do you think of Eric von Daniken and the chariots of the gods? I mean, it was that serious that it would stop a person becoming a Christian. So we sat down for an hour and went through Eric von Daniken. He said, oh, well, that's stupid, isn't it? And he said, yes. And he said, I can't become a Christian. <laughs> now, it's hard to believe at that point but I was sitting in an aeroplane going across the uh, across the Pacific which means 14 hours locked into the person beside me I always pray that they don't speak English and <laughs> well I've got two ways to live I can just draw it for them can't I you know uh, anyway and, and this bloke said well he found out I was a clergyman and said oh you're a minister he said have you read Dan Brown I said no no I haven't he said oh I think you should no, I said no I don't think so he said, uh, it's really good. I said, oh, I'm glad you enjoyed it. He said, yes. I said, oh, good. And he said, but it makes you think, you know. And I said, well, it doesn't because I don't read it, you know. And so he says, well, there's a lot of things there. And so I said, it's a fiction. It's a novel. You know, there are facts, there are fictions. There's nonfiction, there's fiction. It's a fiction. He said, oh, yes, yes, it's a fiction. But it makes you think, doesn't it? <laughs> 14 hours later, we were still off with Dan. I mean, it's just ludicrous, you see. But one of the good things of time is you see that verse is right. They come, they go, they come, they go, they come, they go. They don't actually change things. So don't, and the opposition comes and goes. So at the time, it feels overwhelming. But our God is in control. And, and so... We've got to keep trusting him and that they will, he will use these things. It's costly, though, at the time. 
It's costly for us. It's costly in emotional energy. It's costly in time. It's a great distraction to your time. It's costly for the congregation members because you get attacked. They feel defensive of you. Then they worry that maybe the attack is right and you are an immoral person and you're not doing the right thing and they they want you to tone down what is being said so as to make it uh, more palatable so they don't fall out with their neighbours. It's costly for everybody. But then again, we preach the cross. So why do you expect otherwise? So with those general introductory comments, what are the one, two, three, four, five questions that they asked? And then I was hoping I'd speak quickly enough that we could do Q&A. What things are we afraid to do was the first question. What things are we afraid to do? Well, we're afraid to lose relationships. That's my first one I think I want to pick up and because we're afraid now some of us more than others some of us are insecure about our relationships and it's really important that we have our relationships and so that kind but therefore we want to build bridges to the community but because we're afraid of losing relationships we are constantly building the bridges that we're never going to walk across we're never actually going to challenge somebody with the gospel because well, maybe tomorrow, maybe the next week, maybe the year after, maybe, maybe, maybe. So we'll never actually disagree with anybody about anything. And so we don't witness to people because we don't want the conflict, because we don't want to lose our relationships. We also don't want to be thought of negatively, uh, intellectually or in our masculinity or in our sensitivity or in our social business, whatever it may be. We don't like the criticisms and so we accommodate ourselves to make sure that that criticism doesn't happen. So we, we get our university degrees, we, we do our demin so that we can call ourselves doctor so that they'll listen to us. They'll never listen to us because we've got the degrees. It's an irrelevance. They listen to the truth because the Holy Spirit is opening their hearts and minds to the truth, not because you've got your degrees. It's... Nothing against the academic qualification and nothing against doing the study. I'm all for the study. But if you think you're going to be listened to because you've got lots of degrees before and after your name, you've got bats in your belfry. It's just not going to happen. Or the desperate attempt all the time to be fashionable, to catch up with the latest and to be on the cutting edge. And You don't have to be. You've got to be genuine. That's what you need to be. Uh, genuine in your love, genuine in your truth, an integrity of person, the fashionability, the latest of whatever it is in your clothes, in your style, in your music, in your whatever it is, really doesn't cut it in the long run. And so we're afraid, actually, to be holy. That's what we're afraid to be. Uh, it's, it's, It's a weird thing, but holiness is something that terrifies us because the essence of holiness is being different and that's what we don't want to be Australians are appalling conformists and part of our weakness as Christians is we're Australians we put being conformists ahead of being holy and so we we insisted the people who are if you follow fashion you're always a follower you're never a leader you're never going to change society by following society it's a it's a obvious stupidity that we share because we're conformists we don't want to stand out and be different 
But yet the very nature of what holiness is, is being different. And so we are constantly accommodating ourselves and our message, and that's especially the difficult part because it's our message, to the world's message and to the world's acceptability. And that is a failed lost cause. Nearly all heresies of the centuries have come from accommodation. And even the accommodation in order to preserve the gospel in one generation turns out to be a heresy in the next. So by Aquinas showing how uh, Christianity was conforming to Aristotelianism, he created a totally distorted Christianity in much the same way that Augustine did when he showed that Christianity was consistent with Neoplatonism a thousand years before him. And so he distorted Christianity. So if you can show Christianity is consistent with post-modernity, the Christianity that you'll be preaching is not Christian. It's post-modernity. We, we keep accommodating and creating the heresies for the future in our own age. So just grasp the fact. If you're going to be a Christian minister, you're going to be different. That's why Jesus said, they hated me, they'll hate you. The disciples never greater than the master. So we're called upon to be unlike the world. As pastors, we also run into the problem of this kind of fear. We have a fear of splitting the congregation by teaching the truth. And so we don't teach error. We don't necessarily even water down the truth. What we do is we don't mention that area that is going to cause conflict. Therefore, creating bigger conflict down the lay and or heresy entering into our church with the next minister or other leaders because the congregation have not been taught the truth so they have nothing to defend themselves with when errors then come in. It's a terrible dereliction of duty to avoid speaking on a topic because it's going to cause disunity, disharmony, controversy within the congregation. You must never do that. Though the temptation to do it I know is very great because when I've asked people to speak up on topics in their church, they say, oh, look, in our church we've got a, you know, a really strong group of feminists and I wouldn't want to upset them. Or in our church, there's a, we're trying to reach the homosexual community so therefore we don't actually mention anything about homosexuality because we don't want to offend the homosexual community. So there are parts of the Bible I'm not going to mention. Uh, one of the Sydney churches I know, uh, they preached on divorce one of my friends was there and he walking up behind two people and uh, he said uh, at the end of it, now the man preached against divorce but he gave so many qualifications that this couple going out in front of my friend said, well, it's all right to divorce. What he's really saying is it doesn't matter. Marriage is not for life. Now, that is not what the minister meant to say but by the time he put in all the qualifications... That is what was heard. We can't accommodate our message to avoid conflict within our congregations because then you're not the shepherd leading the sheep. You're actually one of the sheep following a flock that has no shepherd. It's that big an error that is taking place. So a big student conference I know the other day was speaking on a topic that raised the issue of feminism and they decided not to, not to discuss it because there was disagreement within the group and they thought it was best just to leave it quiet. That, that's, 
That's very bad teaching. That's fear. Fear of men instead of fear of God. Well, second question is, what are the things we're unaware to do? Uh, We're unaware to do the consistency of the basics that are necessary. It's not glamorous to week in, week out, teach the Bible. It's more glamorous to speak on sexy topics. But just to teach the Bible is what is necessary. It's like a lot of Christian ministry is like teeth cleaning. You know, it's not in itself all that, you know, magnificent an activity. But it's the consistent, persistent routine that actually preserves your teeth right till the end. It really is important. And so I keep seeing in our delivery of church life the attempt to make it really relevant rather than making it really faithful. There's, there's the kind of problem. If you consistently read only one testament, you're misreading the Bible because the Bible is written in two testaments and you must read both testaments to understand either testament. So the pattern that is so common today that we just read the passage that the preacher's preaching on is a bad pattern to be in because you're not teaching your people how to read the Bible. It's written in two testaments and it must be read in two testaments. And you've got to consistently read both testaments to understand either testament properly. And so modelling good Bible reading. So what am I talking about? I'm talking about 1 Timothy 4. 1 Timothy 4. What are you to do? Well, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. Are we doing that? Just put a clock on time and see how much time we spend singing compared to how much time we spend praying. Not that length of prayer is matters. And how much time we spend reading the Bible compared to the amount of time we give advertisements, notices, or if you're an old-fashioned Presbyterian, intimations. And we spend more time on community time than we spend time listening to God's word. You say, oh, no, we listen to God's word when I'm preaching. Yeah, that's terrific. Can I get the pure stuff as well, please? And so we need to read the Bible, to model reading the Bible. To see Bible reading as a normal thing to do. Even sequentially just reading through the book of a Bible. Unrelated to the sermon. Because we're a group who come together to hear God's word. So there are just basic things like that. Because they're not sexy. because they're not, But they are of the heart of who we are as the people of God. And so we're unaware that we are not doing them. Things we need to be reminded to do then. What are these? That's the next question I've got things that we need to be reminded to do well we don't have to answer the world we have to get the world to answer God we are not answerable to the world the world is answerable to God and if we are his ambassadors then we need to be challenging them with what they are going to have to give answer to to God That is, there is a place for apologetics to give reason for the hope that lies within you to anybody who may ask. But more important is categorics, which is such an obscure thing, no one even knows the word. Categorics is to challenge the other person. Apologetics is to defend. We need to be challenging the world because the world's philosophies are wrong. They do not hold up. They do not hold up under scrutiny. But we're so 
keen to be answering the scrutiny the world places on us that we never actually challenge the world and its problems. Uh, what, what do I mean? Thomas Nagel, he's a great philosopher, of uh, atheistic philosopher in uh, uh, New York University, right? who writes several books. Thomas Nagel says, well, given death, given humanity, one of his great books, he, he finishes it saying, it's not just tr- that humans are ridiculous, humans are absurd. His end point of understanding life is, it is ultimately absurd. There's a philosopher. He also writes, he says, it's not that uh, I'm against religion, I am, but I want to be against religion. It's because I don't want the world to be religious. He expresses clearly that his anti-religious stance is a prejudicial bias. He's a professor of philosophy. Atheism actually doesn't hold up. You, you, you go for Dawkins, you see. Dawkins says what you see in the world is that there is no right, there is no wrong, there is no good, there is no evil, there is just, there, there is just pitiless indifference. Now, do people in the street understand that Mr Dawkins believes there is no such thing as good and bad, there is no such thing as right and evil? There's a French philosopher, Luc Ferry, who's writing at the moment, an atheist, but an interesting one because he sees that Nietzsche uh, is right, that the Enlightenment was wrong, life is meaningless, but he says it can't be right because of the Holocaust. He says, I cannot in the end say it didn't matter. And so he tries now to create some other way of showing that mattered when he knows intellectually He's got no basis for it to say it mattered. You see, we're not challenging the world in the way in which, if you read Luke Ferry, A Short History of Thought, I think it's called, when you read him, he points out how the Christians destroyed Stoicism. Stoicism, very much like uh, Buddhism, uh, the only way in which you can understand the world is the moment because history is irrelevant, the future is irrelevant, it's just the moment. He says that's in the end where Nietzsche winds up. The moment is everything. Embrace the moment. It's neither good and it's neither bad, it's just the moment. That's where you're in. He says that's what Stoicism taught. That's where Nietzsche comes up to Christianity, and he got a whole chapter on Christianity, and he's very positive about Christianity because it destroyed Stoicism and gave rise to the Enlightenment, And but unfortunately Nietzsche has shown the Enlightenment doesn't work. Well, Dawkins is an Enlightenment man. He hasn't understood where atheistic philosophy has taken us since then. You see, we should be attacking the world rather than thinking we've got to answer all the time. I saw a pastor church the other day, big questions. Questions for today, you know, why does God allow suffering? That's not the question for the day. The question for the day is, why do atheists believe in amorality? Or that's not a very good one to put out in the language, but I've got to attack them rather than me. I don't have to answer them. They have to answer God. You know, why, aren't you, why are you staying away from hearing God's word? Now, I've got to be putting it on a different thing. So things where you need to be reminded to do is, actually, God's word is the truth, and God's way will work best in this world. And we've got to remember that that is our gospel that we need to be pushing. Next question is, Particular dangers for FIC pastors. 
Yes. Well, this is a very long one. There is no system that will ever preserve the truth. That's called Roman Catholicism. There's no system that you can establish for a right relationship of the pastor to the congregation as a system, as a structure. It doesn't exist. That's the Presbyterian heresy. They think they've got a biblical system. No, 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 they don't. They think they've got the biblical system. And they're wrong. There's no... The Anglicans, you see, give you unfettered freedom to be a heretic. The Baptists give you total restriction and will sack you if you preach the gospel. There is no system that will protect you and that is right and proper. The, the, the way of protection is teaching the truth. That is the way of protection. Living the gospel is the way of protection and the way of establishing it. And so as FIEC develops, you are developing constitutional characteristics. No constitution is going to save you. No constitution is going to actually tell you the modus operandi to operate on. It's the gospel that is your modus operandi. You actually have to live by the character of your convictions, the truth of the gospel. And even when you do that, remember, sheep bite. So it's, and every church you're in is dysfunctional. If it wasn't, there'd be no reason for you to be there and you'd already meet the chief shepherd because you're dead. <laughs> so as this movement develops... It is developing its own characteristic of way of operating. But the way of operating is ultimately not going to be the right way because there is no right way of operating other than being a gospel person. It's your heart. You see, you can't institutionalise the truth. The place where the truth lives is in the hearts of redeemed and regenerated people. That's the only place outside the Bible it lives. And so that's in the gospel we must put our confidence and not in our structures, our system, our movement, our... Next is, as you move from being an evangelist to being a church planter and to being a church pastor, evangelism nearly always falls off the back of the truck. You, you look at a, a mainstream church and you say, look, they're not doing much evangelism. They spend so much time in committees, they spend so much time in this and that and all the rest of it. We're not like that. Now, you're not like that because you're first generation. But third generation, you'll be exactly like that. And you're in the process already. So I've seen several evangelists who have met with God's blessing and seen congregations grow. They've started the congregation, and lo and behold, 10 years down the track, they're no longer evangelizing in the very place in which they were seeing people converted because they haven't got time to anymore because they're pastoring a church. And so there is a tension that will come to you. How do you keep evangelism on the front foot when you're now responsible for a congregational life? It's, it's come into the problem. See, we talk church planting, but very few of you, if any of you, are church planters in my perception of church planting. You're church founders by and large. You found the church. You plant a church, yes, but you only ever plant one. Well, someone who's only ever planted one is not a church planter. He's a church founder. When he was planting that church, he was a church planter, but once he stopped planting churches, he became a church founder. 
Nothing wrong with that. That's not a put down. It's an attempt to get you to see yourselves properly, to understand what you're doing properly. Because a church founder is actually going to be there in 20 years' time, which is why it's so important that he's well theologically trained and equipped for the job before he starts, because you can't do it once it's up and running. A church planter plants a church, moves on, plants a church, moves on, plants a... The longest we know Paul ever stayed anywhere was three years in Ephesus. He was always moving on, preaching the gospel. As a result of preaching the gospel, he was, lo and behold, planting other churches. But we don't do that. We stay in Ephesus for the rest of our ministry. I'm all for you staying in Ephesus for the rest of your ministry. That's terrific. But that means you needed to have been trained in the first place to be that kind of pastor so that you will know how to continue evangelising once you've got the church up and running and not to be overwhelmed by the running of the church so that you no longer evangelise. I think you asked about the dangers of, uh, of FIC pastors. I think that's one of the big ones. And then how to be a church sponsor. Because that's another thing, isn't it? That is, I've started this church, I'm building it to be a big church, but how big a church will be enough to reach Australia? The answer is it can't be. What you need to be is to build a big enough church that you can actually sponsor other churches. I'm all for growing as big a church as you can, but more importantly than growing a bigger church is having the kingdom of God spread to more people. Gospel, in the end, is more important than the church at that point. And I'm all for spreading the gospel by planting other churches. So how can I continue the evangelistic outreach into the world while growing a bigger and bigger church? That's, a, that's the issues that you face down the track, which if you're not properly trained and equipped and mentored and cared for in an intern program or whatever it might be, I'm, I'm afraid uh, you, you, you're always having to learn something that is completely different to what you started out doing. So there's a problem. You asked what I thought were things. Next is FIEC churches are not community-based churches but gathered communities. That is, the old Presbyterian church, Anglican church, uh, they were community-based churches, one in every suburb kind of churches, because they were reaching that suburb. Whereas Baptist churches were gathered communities. And so a Baptist church can move, doesn't matter. It's not tied to the particular suburb that it's in. That's not, it's, it's gathering in. I, I'm, not de- I'm not defending either system. I'm just, I'm just giving the social, sociological analysis of the two kinds of churches that are there. You're down the Baptist end of the spectrum in that regard, in that you've gathered people in. But what is then the relationship with the community around about you? Now, that is a key of what this school issue that you're just talking about. It's exactly the kind of issue that you're involved in. The mainstream churches find it easier to get on with the community around about because we've been around and you know, the Anglican church has been next door to the, the school, teaching scripture in the school forever and a day. And it's harder to persecute them. But it's easier to persecute you because who are you? What status do you have in the community, etc.? What What place have you got, you see? 
and that's going to take a generation or two to develop. Now the temptation for the pastor is to withdraw into a holy huddle and see the world as enemy. Now again, what Peter was saying for us from 1 Peter, you see this is the issue. It's a very relevant, important issue that we're dealing with. Do we withdraw into the... But any withdrawal into a holy huddle, the essence of that huddle is that it's not holy. Because the holy huddle are different to the world because the, the, the holy huddle is concerned for the salvation of the world. So if you lose that sense of the salvation of the community around about you, your holiness is not the holiness of God. So our relationship in the community, I thought 1 Peter, that was a wonderful and helpful exposition this morning for us, wasn't it? To be looking at this issue. Because pastors, you are responsible to struggle and help your congregation deal with this issue. How much are we involved in the community? How much are our community take precedence over the community around about us? How do we do that interrelation? Yes, you ask particular dangers for FIC pastors, you, you have it. Another danger is that coming from the, uh, many of you coming from uh, mainstream Presbyterian Anglican backgrounds, now you are freed from those restrictions and you've become a law unto yourself and you'll become mini popes and dictators. Because some of you come from Baptist backgrounds and are in a kind of baptistical structure, you'll become the servants of the congregation pushed around and threatened with sacking if you don't uh, toe the top line. Everyone's got these problems, brothers. You've just got to work out what they are and how they relate to you. One of the good things is the fellowship of independent churches because the fellowship will help encourage you to be godly. Can't in the end hold you to account. That's the denomination failures, right? That they try and tell ministers how to do everything. But no, it does though fellowship and encourage you in godliness. And so it's really important. Not only do I believe in church planting, I've always believed in getting us together to fellowship with each other from the very first conference. This conference is really important. It's really important to you. It's really important to be here all the time and to continue in good, positive relationships with each other. Uh, naturally, the, the particular dangers of FIC pastors is the dangers of all pastors. That is, you move into uh, away from taking the risks of failure as you proceed down the line. See, when you start out, you start in a small way, you've got no reputation... It doesn't matter if you got it wrong. And you say, well, that didn't work. Let's move to this place. Well, that didn't work. Let's change time to that time. You, you can change things. But as things start to grow and work, you start to become maintenance models. You, instead of mission-minded, you get maintenance-minded. It's a normality, especially as you grow older and especially as you become middle-aged. And you don't get free of that maintenance mode until you become grandparents. And then life begins. Because, <laughs> you know, it's other people's. It's your children's responsibility, not yours anymore. Uh, it's wonderful. Let me encourage you to it. If, if I could move just from straight being a you know, bachelor to married to having grandchildren without children, I would have I gone for it. It's a, it's, it's a program worth considering. Uh, I encourage you. 
So the whole of life is a continued struggle in Christian ministry. I, I rang Chapo, uh, John Chapman, I won't explain who he is if you don't know. I rang Chapo, who was always a great friend and mentor of mine, um, oh, I don't know, five years, six years ago. Um, uh, and uh, oh, I was feeling tired. He said, how are you? Uh, he rang me each week. He rang me with a joke each week and then a Bible verse and then told me he prayed for me and hung up on me. Um, <laughs> it was a regular pattern. Whenever he heard a joke, he rang me up. When I heard a joke, I'd ring him and tell my joke. And he said, how are you? And I said, oh, I'm tired, mate. I'm just sick of fighting. He said, he's really kind. He's such a, he was a really caring person and looked after me for 40 years. And this was just an example of his, his tender care. I said, you know, I'm, I'm really tired. I'm sick of fighting. And he said, get used to it. That was it. <laughs> that was his advice. Get used to it. Off he went. Hung up on me. You've got to get used to it. This is the normality, which brings me to the last thing. You see, what compels us to make these costly uh, decisions that I'm racing so that we can have Q&A, uh, so don't, don't let me down with no questions. Uh, what compels us, and there are four things I worked out, which if I could get this little bit to open up, I would be able to tell you, but as I can't, I won't. Uh, no. It's the love of Christ which compels us, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It's the love of Christ which compels us because we're persuaded that one died for all, therefore all died, so that those who live no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. It's, it's that love of Christ, which means that we are the slaves of the people that we minister to. You see, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord with ourselves as your slaves for his sake. Now, we don't like the word slave, so we call it servants, even though there are two Greek words for servant and slave that are completely different, and it's the word slave is there. Right? And we are your slaves, not Jesus' slaves. We are the Corinthian slaves because that's what Jesus wants us to do. So we are your slaves for his sake. If Jesus is my Lord, then I am your slave. So that's why I do the cost. That's the first thing, is it's the love of Christ. Second one is the glory of God. What we're doing is what God wants us to do, what God commands us to do. And it's the reason for living. We no longer live for ourselves, but for him. So... This is what we are to do because this is the best way to life. Thirdly, because of our expectations in life. When we're invited into the ministry, into the gospel, because that's when we're invited into the ministry, Jesus said, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, follow me. So what is my expectation of the Christian life? I'm expecting to suffer. <laughs> that's my expectation. The passage we read, 2 Timothy chapter 3. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's not an optional extra. It's fundamental. Godly there doesn't mean good. Godly there means gospel life. Because that's the nature of the godliness in 1 and 2 Timothy. The word means gospel. 
Godliness is uh, the mystery of godliness is that Christ appeared in the flesh, vindicated the spirit, seen by angels. That, that's, that's the godliness. That's the essence of godliness. So in our discipling and in our disciple making and in our disciple making of disciple makers, suffering and cost caring and that must be part of it. There's got to be part of the program which says, by the way, your normal expectation is not a good, comfortable, happy, secure life. Your normal expectation is opposition, persecution and suffering because you are seeking to live godliness. That is, you are witnesses to Christ. That is, you're going to testify against the world. So, of course, the world won't like you. My message to the world is repent. What does that mean? It means stop, you're going the wrong way. Now, that's a message everybody loves to hear, isn't it? Well, no, but it's a message everybody needs to hear. But it's not one they're going to love to hear. They're never going to love the messenger who comes and says, your whole life is actually going down the gurgler because it's completely wrong. All the decisions you've made so far are fundamentally flawed. That is not a message the world ever wants to hear. Though it is the message that they need to hear. So of course the world is not going to be happy with, with us. Well, that's all right. Once you've grasped the expectation and, and made it your own, then you bear the cost gladly. Remember the disciples, how they rejoiced that they were considered worthy of sharing in the sufferings of the Christ? In uh, Acts 5, is it? 4 or 5. They're good chapters. Read them both. Then the last reason is a completely pragmatic reason. Accommodation to the world doesn't work. And again, this is an advantage of many years. I have watched group after group accommodate to the fashions, fads and character of current society and none of them exist today because they've all failed over time. Every group that has tried to reach the world by being the world has been ignored by the world. Short-term success... You know, we run a really quick, snappy 30-minute service. You get more people come initially and no one comes in five years' time because there's nothing to come to. So accommodation doesn't work. Though we keep being seduced into thinking it will. Do you want to ask questions and make comments?